0: To an episode of the Tefo happy show hosted by myself. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world.
1: I believe that opening businesses and and the healthy capitalism without the corporations which destroy the environment, etc.
0: I think be naive to say that we've completely overcome any polarizing or divisive issues on the racial front. Be thank you for taking some time out to listen to the podcast. Have you noticed how during social protests, some companies and brands jump on the bandwagon and start issuing statements on social media about being in solidarity with protesters? Some of them really care about social injustices and they act on it. This also comes through in their messages in the media and social media. On the other hand though, some companies appear only to do it just for pure marketing purposes without really caring about the cause or even backing up their words of solidarity with any action. This also happened a few days after George Floyd was killed by a police officer in America. As the Black Lives Matter protests went on globally, companies came out stating their solidarity with the movement. Something interesting also happened. Some venture capitalists, accelerators, and investors also came out not only pledging solidarity with Black Lives Matter, they also promised funding and other support measures for Black-owned tech startups. However, the question that begs asking during such times and when such statements are made is Did they follow through with their promises.
1: I saw, like you said, all these statements coming out and just wanted to keep in my head who was saying what because not all of them were the same.
0: That's Denisha Kulo, my guest on this episode of my podcast. Denisha is responsible for early-stage tech at Grasshopper Bank, a New York-based digital bank that serves startup founders, their companies, and their investors. Interestingly, Denisha started a public spreadsheet to track which companies and investors were making commitments to Black startups and founders and to see not only which ones followed through with these commitments, but to also help founders and startups to get in touch with them regarding their commitments. And already, there has been some good news.
1: I got great news uh, last week, actually, that a founder reached out to to an angel investor and that angel investor participated in her seed
0: round apart from talking about how startups can be supported in general i also had a discussion with denisha about music and digital technology and how all this is changing the way in which artists interact with their fans and make money
1: i, I like the trend of label labels and looking at labels in a service-based business and i also think labels are getting creative with the deals that they give to artists because and one thing that always frustrated me and provoked my disdain for record labels is the deals felt predatory in some sense still do Uh, signing an artist and even the the concept of the advance that they get and all that money owning yeah owning people's masters in perpetuity Uh, so i think that's changing and labels recognize that
0: you should actually subscribe to denisha's weekly music newsletter which is appropriately named a stan as she explores the relationship between fans and the music artists they love. Before you listen to my discussion with Denisha, let me take a few seconds to tell you about Truehost.Africa, the sponsor of this episode of the Tifo Mohapi Show. Truehost offers domain names, web hosting, free website builders and email solutions. As a listener of my podcast, you get a discount when purchasing anything at Truehost. Visit truehost.africa forward slash iAfrican. Remember, that's iAfrican with a K. Select the products you want and apply the discount code iAfrican. Don't forget, that's I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N. I think we live in interesting times. I think the past couple of weeks and months, especially in 2020, or just 2020 as a whole has been a bit of a shock. I don't think anybody could have prepared us for what's been happening. But what's also been happening and interesting, apart from the pandemic that's going on, is the whole Black Lives Matter movement and what's Mm -hmm. happening with police brutality in the USA like any movement things come out of it all sorts of things come out of it and what I started noticing was that brands and companies were starting to post messages on social media saying that they pledge allegiance or they support black lives matter etc something caught my attention during that period then you started I think you had a sheet or something to that effect which was tracking what venture capitalists were pledging so that you can track their commitments can you tell us a little bit more about that
1: yeah so I signed the sheet for two reasons one just because I saw like you said all these statements coming out and just wanted to keep in my head who was saying what because not all of them were the same and two I talked to founders who wanted to take some of these VCs up on the commitment that they were making and there wasn't really a unified place to identify and understand who was saying what.
0: And so far I know we it's still early days probably but so far yeah. Any committed to those
1: commitments? Yeah, so I got great news uh, last week actually that a founder reached out to an angel investor and that angel investor participated in her seed round and so sent over commitments and beyond just the capital is actually going to be really value-add and strategic for her business. So that's exciting. And then broader people, a lot of the commitments are connecting and reaching out to folks. So people have reached out and are getting calls on the books. So great first steps think the ultimate goal is to get to the wire but (laughs) introductions as well
0: oh that's good that sounds good because a lot of time what was frustrating for me looking at all that is a lot of times things like this happen and brands and companies just commit on social media for their own social capital really if we're making effective change if I can put it that way they keep the same systems in place they keep the don't support black people in place etc I'll Mm -hmm. give you an example from my side uh, from the digital Spotify issued a statement saying they also pledge allegiance to Black Lives Matter and they support Black artists. And I think there was a Blackout Tuesday or something like that. Yeah, I saw that. And then a thought occurred to me, if Spotify could literally, they could not post on social media at all these statements. Mm -hmm. And all they would need to do is probably up the per stream payments by something like 50% and Black artists will be happy. Like you don't even need to...
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And it's been interesting for a few reasons, I'd say, kind of looking at some of these statements. One, some of them back channeling to my friends who might work at some of these organizations or just people at these organizations. I think it's hard to truly believe and champion a statement saying you stand in solidarity with Black people or you're an ally when these companies haven't necessarily done the work of evaluating how they treat Black people at their companies. And so it's just like, how can you stand in solidarity when the black people at your company are hurting and a lot of that has been inflicted by working at your company? Seeing that is just interesting and to be honest, sometimes a little frustrating. And then the other part too, I think, is in some ways a lot of the statements feel a little lazy saying the same thing, reiterating the same thing and not showing actionable steps for change. And even if they do commit to donating. Shout out to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, but there clearly were a few uh, charities that or organizations that emerged. And it would have been interesting to me, if you're headquartered somewhere, why don't you find like the local or grassroots organization in your state or your city? But you didn't really see much of that. So it was awesome to see what Netflix has done, I think, these last few years. I just saw that today, Yeah,
0: yeah. I didn't see the exact details. What specifically
1: are they committing to? Is it hundred million dollars in film production, or what is it? Hundred million dollars actually to black-owned banks, and as someone that works in banks, it's going to be huge. So banks can leverage that money to make additional loans, to do things in their community through the Community Reinvestment Act. So just literally seeding what amounts to they said two percent of their capital to black-owned banks is great, and they're get still getting a service. It's going to be truly beneficial to the black community.
0: That's good. And talking, you work with startups at Grasshopper. Maybe this is a good time for you to just introduce yourself to the listeners and who is Denisha? How did she get into working with banks?
1: Sure. Yeah. So hi, everyone. I'm Denisha. just said I cover early stage technology at Grasshopper. Um, Grasshopper is a digital first venture bank. So we focus on helping companies from incorporation all the way through corporate finance or Acquisition. And then we also bank the funds that invest in them. So your private equity and venture capital firms. Our goal is and mission is really to democratize access to business banking and provide high quality financial products for entrepreneurs everywhere. And so for us, that looks like not just empowering the founders of these companies, but also empowering the folks that get to invest in these companies and changing what that narrative looks like as well.
0: Okay, that's cool. A support system, not just money.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So if we really think about it, banking is a commodity. And so we think a lot about how do we work with companies beyond banking? So spending our time not only just understanding the founder, but also their business. And really this concept that I think being digital allows us to to have is how can we expand not just the founder, but beyond the ecosystem for a New York company is very much a New York company, but how do we connect you to Atlanta investors or get you plugged into the Atlanta market earlier. How do we get you plugged in Africa? And considering Africa yeah. is the next place for for go to for growth, market, and yeah. if you are interested in Africa, where on the continent? So it's really understanding the founder and their business, and then leveraging our networks, relationships, and expertise uh, to help them grow because that leads to more money
0: in the bank. But you guys sound more like a, not like a bank, but like a venture
1: fund. So I do liken us to like the VC platform side yep. of a venture fund, but we also think that the founders and businesses should have access to this kind of service and value add, regardless of whether they raise institutional capital. Um, while we know a lot of folks will try to raise institutional capital or take investment, there's a lot of companies that are doing really well and sustainable uh, themselves, and so we think that we should be able to provide that same platform uh, for them to tap into.
0: And what trends? Sitting on the financing side of startups, what trends quickly are you seeing in terms of industries that are not easily financeable, but becoming Mm -hmm. trending? I'll give you an example. Across the continent over the past five to 10 years, it seems what's been trending, if I can put it that way, from a VC and financing perspective is like fintech. A lot of payments companies, a lot of yeah. processing companies. So from the state side, from New York side, what what seems to be trending?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say a lot of focus right now is around things that are COVID-proof. Uh, of course, it's digital, uh, you're seeing right now less consumer products, unless it's CPG or in the food space, which I think is interesting and makes a ton of sense. Uh, and we're seeing a lot in ed tech. Ed tech was traditionally an industry yeah. that, Venture didn't love, but I think now after people have been home with their children. Yeah, trust really- me, we
0: we need that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so ed- ed tech has become a lot more popular for, for obvious reasons as well.
0: And do you guys work with any African startups or any African funds or...
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So it's something I'm, of course, very passionate about. I'm first generation Ghanaian American. And I think a lot about how we bridge the ecosystems between those on the continent, as well as the United States in general. So we do work with African startups in the capacity for those that have an entity in the U.S. Yeah, so as long as they have a U.S. entity, we're happy to work with them. Of course, pending what the business is and due diligence, but yeah, we do, and it's definitely a an area I'm passionate about. So, hoping to increase that more in the in the coming months. One area
0: that I, I really wanted to talk to you about in and- What caught my attention, apart from the sheet that you had tracking Black Lives Matter pledges by VCs, was the area of digital music. I, unfortunately, have a failed digital music startup in my previous life.
1: (laughs) I want to hear about it. I want to hear the pitch.
0: We can talk about that later, but yeah, failed (laughs) And I loved your newsletter. Newsletter gives quite interesting insights and long form pieces. But what for me frustrates me to this day, like we mentioned earlier about Spotify, is that the amount of money per stream, how did they reach that amount? Because I was looking at before Spotify, it was Apple Music or iTunes. It wasn't even, it came with a whole digital music thing to say, you buy an album, I think it was $9.99. Yeah. So artists got used to that. It's $9.99. You knew that if you sold a thousand albums, what? $10,000 roughly. Then comes streaming, which said that we're only going to pay you about 0.004 cents per stream. And to reach that $9.99, you needed something like, I think, 2,000 streams, if I'm not wrong, or 4,000 streams to reach $9.99, which to me, that ratio just... who thumbs up that or who came up with that or how did they come up with it?
1: I think that's a great criticism and the music industry in general has always been one that's figuring out their business model, it feels, and benefited a lot, very similar to the business model of venture in some ways, right? Like I'm going to invest in 20 companies, expect pretty much all of them to fail, but the one that is successful will make up for the losses. But when you look at it, that's a really volatile risky business model. So then shifting to iTunes and I think sometimes Steve Jobs isn't talked about enough in terms of how him and Apple reconfigured the music industry and how we thought about things. So from the consumer perspective, they encouraged the consumer to value accessibility, I think, and ability to access music quickly versus collectability, (laughs) in which people used to showing off your CD music. Yeah, it was a badge of honor. And now less so. That shift ultimately led to... And it's tricky because... And I think this is what Spotify's argument would be, is that the whole business model of the industry has shifted for artists, and therefore the bulk of their revenue is not going to be derived from Spotify, but it's ultimately a loss leader for the business of the artist. And there makes being an artist more complex, right? Because uh, before you could put out your music and go, hypothetically, you could yeah. put out album and go home and you put out your album and your album sold well. But now if you were to put out an album, even if it does well, it's incrementally less in terms of how much you would make compared to if you had that same type of success before. So I think it's breeded in an environment in which the business of being an artist is more complex and truly requires more labor, requires more emotional labor, physical labor due to touring and just work in general. So agree. And I think it's an important question that artists have to think about in becoming an artist, the the complexity the career has evolved into.
0: And as you said, it's changed the complexity of being an artist because sometimes, you had artists who didn't but were pop had popular music so they knew they could live off their sales yeah they were popular now you don't only you can't just be a recording artist you have to be a performing artist you have to and get endorsement deals an
1: influencer
0: correct you have to be an influencer Mm -hmm. too to get endorsement deals to supplement yeah which is not something that many artists are comfortable with or skilled yeah
1: There's a started to think a lot more once I was writing for Stan about the emotional labor that comes with being an artist, and I think it's something that's discounted, and more and more artists are trying to grapple with that dynamic. But you see it when they begin to cancel meet and greets, or they take dedicated time off because No Name was a great example of this, with like her saying, "I can't, I don't want to perform my music to white crowds. That is very tough Mm -hmm. for me, and takes Lot out of me. And so there's definitely a lot more, I think, emotional labor involved as well. Yeah. But then how do artists navigate
0: out of this? I know you wrote something about, I think it was specific to Ghana and Nigeria. How yeah. do they, about leveraging being an influencer, et cetera, how do they navigate out of this? How do they still follow their passion of recording music yeah. and yeah. pay bills? Or does music, because yeah. now it feels like from my side, it feels like music is literally being reduced to a hobby.
1: For better or worse, it truly is the loss leader. So I think that the things that do generate a significant portion of income really have to be customized and tailored to what the artist wants and the experience that they seek to give and also have with their fans. I think that there hasn't still been enough conversation on what that fan-artist relationship looks like and how we interact with artists, even in a way that will bring them money. I think that not every artist should seek to maybe fill out the 2,000 people yeah. show. You can get to that same amount with 500 dedicated fans who are willing to pay more and it's probably a better experience for you overall. And I also think understanding your fan base and being able to curate and provide experiences that are in tandem and in line with the artists could be a really unique way to do things. In that article, like I talked about the fan frontier in these different countries, yeah. but I would love to go somewhere with my favorite artist. I'd love to hang out in Nigeria with Rima, like thinking a lot more about what that looks like. And for so long, these were the boxes of what it was to be an artist and how you got money as an artist. And I just think that model needs to really be flipped on its head.
0: You're right. I like the example you use of a specialized tour with an artist of a Mm -hmm. few fans. I think every music artist that was sitting outside as a fan in this case, I think every Mm -hmm. music artist has that golden thousand true fans, if I can put it that way. And those are the type of fans. I'm just thinking about my favorite artist. If they released a special edition vinyl, I'd pay $100 for it. If I knew that it's only for a thousand people. If you take that $100 from 1,000 people a month, that's good money that an artist can live. With. But I just, you're right. People, there's these boxes that uh, the music industry, if I can put it that way, and artists are used to and want to still stick to in terms of going forward. Yeah,
1: and the problem, I think, with those boxes is, for, for lack of better words, it's fast money. And you're seeing that now for artists in the era of COVID. The touring is great. And uh, Jay Cole said it in 1985, like, after a while those shows slow up Uh, and when that's your primary source of revenue it makes it really tough to what do you do after that and the problem I think a lot about and I'm really struggling with is that even amongst that you don't have ownership of that data. Ticketmaster whoever, the promoter, these shows have built their brands beyond the artist and so that's who fans have loyalty to. They're loyal to the Coachellas and the Afrocellas and the AfroNations regardless of whether an artist is performing or not people are still going to go to Acronation. so they've built this loyalty and affinity to the brand and the promoter really more so than the artist
0: that's it's such an important point you raise on they don't own that data yes maybe perhaps we can talk about my not my it was two of us failed mm-hmm. music startups one of the things this was during the time when Blackberry was quite popular so in South Africa you had Blackberry internet service which was Mm -hmm. affordable and unlimited. So you could browse the internet for as much as you like, upload, download, et cetera. So we started, I joined later. I didn't start, I joined later. Mojeto started a platform where artists literally give us freedom to upload their music for free. Mm -hmm. Fans can download it for free. We just run ads and we split the revenue with the artist. And the the hypothesis behind that was that looking at all the, I can't remember the research now, but the recording artist research, everything from collections, it was showing then in 2012 that nine out of 10 MP3s on the internet, nine of them are like illegal. So there's no point of trying back then, not now, back then. So there's no point. This is before Spotify was popular. So there was no point trying to fight what... People are already sharing. They're already sharing via Bluetooth. They're already emailing each other songs. This is where Music Match Jukebox was big and all those other apps. So people were already sharing these files to each other through various sites. So there was no point trying to fight the user experience of how people are already consuming the music. It was a matter of trying to capitalize on that and make sure artists can make money. But back to the point about data, what you then realize is that as time moves on, as the years have moved on, what should have Mm -hmm. happened is not aggregation of, even from Spotify and Apple Music, it's not an aggregation now to bigger platforms, but artists should have thought about, yes, you can still be on those platforms, but how do I interact and how do I collect data on my fans? Because now what I'm seeing more and more of is you take artists who have 3 million fans on Twitter, 1 million on Instagram, and they do an Instagram Live and they do it and it's over. And I'm like, you should have done at least a Zoom webinar. Because that way that you could have at least collected telephone numbers or, or email yeah. addresses for registration. Exactly, But it's, yeah. it seems it's so difficult to explain this to artists and the, the shift is taking too long in my view. What do you think is stopping yeah. that?
1: Yeah, so right now, and it's something I think a lot about and we have even started to run some experiments to try and figure out like, what works on the consumer side and the fan side, and also what works on the artist side to make that feel more natural. But I think that artists don't truly understand the value of it until it's too late. And then even when it's too late, hypothetically, they're already such a big artist that they're already making money, and in some ways, like still successful, even if they don't have this data, they're still getting a lot of money for touring. They're still they're popular by all accounts. So they're okay. I think it's, there's inflection points in which the artist realizes it or prioritizes it more. And one is what kind of artist is it? So independent artists, they prioritize it a little more because it's literally their bread and butter and they don't have reach or amplification from the other sources who are taking This isn't free amplification from like a label, but for bigger art, I think it happens when they leave their label or go to a new label uh, because labels aren't necessarily in the business of sharing that data no, or whatever won't. they've had with the new label that they're going to go to or if they become independent. So I think the, when they most need it, it's too late or they're now just starting the process, which is unfortunate.
0: But it goes back to what you said earlier. It probably links up to that fast money thing where they're already making a lot of not a lot but it's easier to make money in other ways that they are currently data appears to be such a slug such a lot of hard work but it really isn't and it feels to me like they're leaving a lot of money on the table by not getting that as simple as just collecting email addresses and names
1: yeah I agree one of the things that I think will be helpful and it does sound like Spotify does this somewhat well from the Spotify for artists dashboard but the problem like you said is that fandom is so aggregated and shows up in a variety of platforms. So using the information about Spotify to inform your artist decisions could very well discount Apple Music where you might have a larger fan base and is more reflective of your fan base. And so it really needs to be an aggregate and a more holistic view. And so as I've been doing research and running experiments, that's kind of, I think, where the challenge approaches and how do you truly paint a holistic picture of what that fan base looks like? I
0: actually have an answer it's something I've thought a little bit about and probably bounce it off you now and probably get well questions and feedback from listeners when they get to listen to this. So I think the problem can be solved. It's just that music streaming companies are like any other big tech platform. They want to protect their own interests. If you look at podcasting, we distribute podcasts via RSS. And that allows you, if yeah. you technically skilled that allows you to literally you can see how much streams from where how long etc from the different platforms because you host your own rss stream and you host your own mp3 or whatever audio file so you are able to run whatever analytics you want on that data yeah so artists could do that it's just that there's so many power dynamics at play, but maybe this is where you can give your thoughts on it. That is it possible? Is it something that
1: can be done? Yeah, I think it can be done. I think initially when artists are starting off, they don't want to, not necessarily they don't want to, but they also maybe don't have the bandwidth to learn in regards to, to what that would entail. And interestingly enough, I think that even when they do employ that strategy and continue to use it, labels will come in and reconfigure all of it. <laughs> and so I think it's tricky and it makes sense for the right type of artist, one that's definitely probably digitally native and bit tech savvy to begin with and one that prioritizes owning or understanding their audience from the very beginning and probably maintaining their independence throughout.
0: But yeah, I don't see it happen. I think it, it might happen. Maybe some will do it, but I think it'll take too long for it to happen. Like You look recently, and only recently I just read that uh, Sony Entertainment Africa released a portal for their artists, which shows them how much their royalties are getting per stream. And then they can release the funds quicker so they don't have to wait on the quarterly or monthly cycles of seeing how much you've earned and getting there. So that's one step, but that's moving, given that the technology is already there, these capabilities can, it's like switching on a, a, flicking a switch. These things can be done now but because the data again is in the hands of a few if I can put it that way it makes it a bit more difficult yeah I
1: think I think interesting with labels and even like that decision by Sony to do that that transparency probably always wasn't welcome on their end when you look at the Goldman Sachs report about music two years ago the average artist only takes home 12 percent of the actual money that they generate and create so there's so many stakeholders in music that type of report, I think is probably the the best thing to make an artist want to consider to go independent. And much to what you said before about the streaming and the the royalties and money and music and how they're paid, Spotify, and they ended up shuttering this initiative because of the feedback and pushback they got from the labels, but they... Did something with independent artists. And because I remember No Name was one of those artists, and it ultimately equated to, I think, a 50 50% split. And they were getting paid directly through Stripe. And okay. so I think by showing some of that transparency, artists see how much money is being dished out to various stakeholders, too.
0: I don't know how it is in the USA, but I know in South Africa, we've got what you call the South African Music Rights Organization, which is a collection society. So this is more an offline thing than yeah. an online thing which uh, they track radio, they track television, they track restaurants, they track all these places, event spaces, and they try and collect royalties on behalf of artists. Has this moved into a digital space yet, to your knowledge, something like this? Yeah, to my knowledge,
1: it hasn't. The only things that I do think are interesting in terms of, I, I wouldn't even say potential solutions, but just fostering more accountability is when and I believe Apple's done this, I don't think Spotify's done it yet, but you'll see at a lot of restaurants and even coffee shops or whatever, they're using a consumer account to play music to yeah. a broader audience yeah. which they technically should not be doing and Apple, I believe has launched or was thinking about launching like a music for business accounts where businesses pay and they're in compliance and while that doesn't solve the problem completely, I do think it helps because it's hard and I don't think that these businesses do it to purposely be non-compliant. It's just not something they're thinking about.
0: Again, it goes back to a frustrating thing of mine with digital music is that the tools are there, but it's just the will to to make things happen, to benefit the artists. As you say, earning 12% of the money you generate sounds like a rip-off in
1: my world. It it, it does, especially when you start to really see the value uh, that these artists bring and who's doing the work. I would argue, Argue that a fan base a dedicated fan base or audience rivals the marketing team of any major label so after a while it's like where is this money
0: oh, it's going to the labels promoters everybody else except the artists yeah yeah which is, which is yeah. really sad but going forward i don't know if you've spent time to think about this but going forward in terms of the music industry the internet digital what are we looking at in terms of not only on the consumer side from consumption and how they consume but also will we ever get a decentralized business models gaining track like we had with Napster or are we all Mm. are we stuck with the centralized models of one the big record labels and it's mainly three of them Sony Warner Universal and stuck with the big streaming platforms. And they all talk to each other. They all own shares in each other in one way or another. Are we stuck with this
1: one big monolith? or Will there ever be a
0: decentralized music industry? Yeah, no,
1: it's a great question. And I started to really think a lot about like antitrust and big tech and the dominance that big tech companies are able to exercise. And interestingly enough, uh, so my godfather, he has a restaurant in the South Bronx and was never really on the delivery platforms, so the Uber Eats and the Grubhub. Uh, and of course, Get COVID accelerated his his onboarding onto those platforms and I'd be remiss if every time I see those statements, I'm not shocked just by the amount of fees that are taken. But the part about it too is the exposure, right? And both being exposed to a new audience and the upfront cost of us trying to do that ourselves and creating a platform set with deliveries, drivers, pickup—all of that would be quite complex. And I don't think that we're going to see a major shift, but I do think that more and more artists are changing the way and what that relationship sh- looks like with uh, labels. I-, I like the trend of labels and looking at labels in a service-based business and I also think labels are getting more creative with the deals that they give to artists because, and one thing that always frustrated me and provoked my disdain for record labels is the deals felt predatory and in so some do. sense still do. do. Uh, signing an artist and even the, the concept of the advance that they get and all that money coming Checkers. Owning, Yeah, owning people's masters in perpetuity. So I think that's changing and labels recognize that. And it's also going to force them to be more competitive in terms of how they help an artist, what that help looks like. Because if not, in some ways it's stifling an artist and they're better off to remaining independent. That's interesting.
0: Now, looking at both worlds that you play in a way, the financing world and the music world, yeah. in terms of financing music startups, what trends are there? And And does it make sense at all to finance music yeah. startups in the world of big tech music platforms?
1: That's a great question. And it was something uh, when I really started to get interested in music and music tech, I really had to expand my thinking what music tech meant and in the sense of what startups would benefit or be be positive to the industry. So I think about it in a few ways. So one, kind of going back to this concept of the artist is a business and the business of the artist, but also music being the loss. I think anything that improves or serves Serves as an alternate source of revenue or creator tools that allow the artist to perform better is super helpful. And so an alternate source of revenue makes something like Cameo really interesting. About artists going on and recording a video and getting revenue from that, improving the relationship with their fans, um, but also Patreon and all these other platforms then become super interesting. But one thing that I started to realize as well was like I spent time talking to companies that were in the music tech space, but were around cybersecurity or physical security and looking at biometrics to understand security and who's in a room because Taylor Swift has stalkers. So when you have a concert with 10,000 people, it behooves you to know. And yeah, yeah. And so seeing things pitched that way were ways that I ultimately never considered, to be honest. So I think that's really interesting. And before what Dr. Dre did with Beats, Hardware, we never looked at (laughs) before is that appealing.
0: So there is still opportunities in the music tech business.
1: Totally. Lior Cohen said it on The Breakfast Club that the renaissance and like the music industry uh, still is very nascent. And I think now more than ever, there's all these different techniques and dynamics and different types of artists at play that truly give the breeding ground for startups and founders to experiment and create, but also there are tests or the people that would be using it are much more open. Uh, Looking at Instagram Live and what they've done versus how fans and artists are. It's truly a time, but I also think what BET just did with their award show, that was fascinating to me, and I think they did a phenomenal job. Who would have thought? I would have thought they'd have canceled the award show, but there was the same type of fanfare, excitement, conversation around performances that people had in the past, and so I don't think It should replace it completely, but it definitely changes the conversation around what can be done. But as we wrap up, doesn't that make you think about,
0: again, going back to this conflict I have in my head about big tech music platforms and to an extent social media platforms and the data Mm -hmm. they have, if you look at Versus running these uh, challenges with artists on Instagram Live. And yeah. the amount of data, just to use Instagram as an example, the amount yeah. of data Instagram Live has on what's been happening in yeah. lockdowns around the world and how that positions them in terms of product development yeah. and product roadmap on what they yeah. can do, doesn't that worry you? Yeah. Yeah.
1: To be frank, I feel like uh, most social media platforms have missed the mark when it comes to serving artists. Uh, A lot of times the businesses that they've uh, looked to truly benefit and optimize on the platform are like small businesses or other fellow tech companies and artists and the needs of artists have not been prioritized enough on the platform when artists are actually one of the lead drivers of engagement on the platform. So it does worry me from like a product perspective perspective that I don't think artists are truly valued in that sense and they don't think enough about informing the product for them. And so I think that creates a unique dynamic because Cardi B is Instagram and and you think (laughs) about some of these other artists, but for like you said, for all her lives, what is she left with? And it's tricky because even with quarantine radio you had artists reaching out like can someone at instagram contact me when Tory Lanez is literally breaking records on on quarantine radio and for all that he did on quarantine radio no I don't think they're still prioritizing (laughs) yeah
0: you're right not prioritizing him and he doesn't have the data to leverage that data to go to sponsors to go to partners to his show to he doesn't have any yeah all he has is screenshots of how many people join
1: yeah All he has is screenshots and the hope that when he does it again, that the same people will show up or more people will show up. But in a lot of ways, it's limiting. It's also interesting, though, because Instagram and some of these other platforms benefit from scale and the defensibility that they have by having so many users on the platform, especially globally. And so when you saw Tori try to do it on another medium, Tori Lane's building something so big on Instagram and bringing a lot of engagements to the platform. The time people were spending watching quarantine radio was Increased amount of time on Instagram or quarantine, yeah, increased amount of time on Instagram versus another platform, and he wasn't like rewarded for that, and uh, the platform didn't really think about how to best serve him because they have they're comfortable based on their dominance, which is a missed opportunity in my opinion. I think it's both a missed
0: opportunity, but also them saying that. Look, Tori, we already have these users. You you, you didn't bring these users because, again, they can see the data. They can see whether these are new users that signed up just to watch Tori Lanes or these are existing users that. Uh, Tory Lane's followers and other people's followers so what would be their benefit of as Instagram rewarding Tory Lanes for continuing engagement with people who are
1: already on instagram I think it could be through features or the features that folks have sure. access to and, and that could be, Instagram needs to think. And right now it's really the war for attention. So beyond Instagram or even Twitter, Netflix could be interested in this. Other platforms could be interested in this. And so they need to reward people's ability to capture attention using the platform. And even if that reward just looks like increased features to enhance the experience that their users have when watching that show, it's something that needs to totally be considered uh, before another platform makes it more enticing. You saw that with Red Table Talk now exclusively on Facebook. These platforms are thinking about that content and what that engagement can bring to their platform.
0: Or even just offering these sort of high value users some premium features.
1: Yeah, that's totally enough. One to encourage the creator or the artist, and then to continue to make the experience great for the fans participating.
0: Danisha, I don't want to take too much of your time. Where can people get hold of your newsletter that shares
1: insights on music and? It's a stand at Substack.com. Remember
0: to tell your friends, family, and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe on the web.